0: Is stealing in as relapse comes up above the din. Hello and welcome to episode 318 of the thinking poker podcast from Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus soon to be joined by not one, but two great Nates. That's right. Our guest today is Nate Silver, whom many of you will probably know as the uh, founder and I guess owner uh, of the Five Thirty Eight. started as a blog. It's more of maybe a website uh, now. Um, They are known, I guess, for making a variety of uh, statistical predictions and statistical analysis about uh, politics, sports, economics, culture, Um, probably most well-known for uh, their political predictions. In fact, the name 538 comes from uh, the number of electors in the U.S. Electoral College. Um, so, But what you may or may not know about Nate is that he also was a former professional poker player and still a pretty serious poker player, apparently uh, listens to this podcast, which was news to me, uh, but obviously very flattering. Um, so it was quite interesting to speak to uh, probably one of the more prominent players. Um, Former professional poker players in in the world, and in terms of people who have a background as, as not just as poker players. Obviously, there's a lot of people who are you know somewhat serious poker players who are famous in other ways. But you know, people if so someone who really played poker for a living for a while, who's now very well known for something related to but outside of poker. Uh, Nate Silver is you know, right at the top of uh, the, the level of fame that I think a uh, uh, you know former professional poker player has achieved so we'll talk to him both about his actual poker career about his current poker playing and then also about you know, some of the intersections between poker and the, the kind of uh, work that he does now with uh, statistics and making predictions about sports and elections and things along those lines. Um, just a really exciting interview one that's been in the making for a while and we're glad that we were uh, finally able to make it work. Um, it's just a lot of fun to talk to him in general and I think you guys are going to enjoy that interview. Before we get there, I'm going to have some strategy for you and uh, I am the strategy sponsor today. Uh, This strategy segment actually is inspired by a question that somebody asked me after uh, I made a custom strategy video for that person. and It occurred to me that it's been a while since I told you that um, I make custom strategy videos. Essentially, if you have enjoyed my uh, videos at Tournament Poker Edge or elsewhere, or you enjoy hearing me talk about strategy uh, here on this podcast podcast, a custom video is a way to get my uh, analysis specific to your play. So you can send me a hand history, you can send me a database, you can send me a list of questions, you can send me notes from hands that you played in a live poker uh, tournament or a cash game, I mean, kind of whatever you want. Um, And I make a video (laughs) where I answer your questions, analyze your play, very much the way I would make a video for a training site or something like that, but it's specific to you. It's uh, 100% about your concerns about hands that you actually played questions that you asked Um, so you know a nice way of something that nate's fond of saying is that there's a lot of good poker training material out there the the scarce resource really is the time to watch it um basically every poker training product maybe not every but like most of the poker training products out there are a good value in terms of like dollars for what you get for those dollars. The real question is, you know, none of us has time to watch all that stuff and how do you make the most out of the, the time that you have? So this is a way of getting videos that are 100% tailored to your needs and your play. The cost for that is $100 per hour of video. A very rough estimate is that you know, if you send me like a hand history from a tournament, for instance, every hand that you played in an online tournament, for every 200 hands in that hand history it'll probably take me about an hour on the video you know that's, a, that's only a very rough guess and kind of depends on how much there is to talk about on various hands or six-handed tournament is going to take longer for instance but just to give you a rough sense of what you might be able to get um, in an hour and for, you know, for a lot of people an hour is, is all it takes. I mean once you get one hour you might decide that you want more but an hour is a perfectly reasonable starting point and even in an hour, I can probably suggest some like big picture things for you to both fix immediately that you know, could make a difference in your play overnight, and also things for you to work on longer term and uh, what materials would be useful to you, what software you should be working with, or what books you should be reading, what concepts you should be thinking about. If you're interested in that a variety of ways to get in touch with me andrew at thinkingpoker.net is probably the best of them you can uh, tweet or dm me my dms are open at thinkingpoker um, if you see me somewhere in person you're welcome to ask me about it there uh, basically any way you can find to get in touch with me um, i'm happy to work out the details of that with you <clears throat> anyway The impetus for this strategy discussion uh, someone sent me a hand history where he made a final table he ended up getting sixth place and uh, of the various things that i suggested that he work on one of them had to do with uh icm and play at the final table so for those who don't know icm stands for independent chip modeling my feedback wasn't really specific to this This model. Um, It was really just about how you should play at a final table or at a situation where the value of your chips does not necessarily correspond all that closely to their face value. Meaning, when you play a cash game, right? Every, if you have $500 in chips, that's worth $500, right? You paid $500 for it, you would sell it for $500. Tournaments are more complicated than that. Um, at the beginning of a tournament, you, know, you might get 10,000 chips for $500, and so then we might say, okay, well, 10,000 chips are worth $500. And that's roughly true. Um, but one of the things that happens in tournaments is not every chip is worth the same amount. So if you have 10,000 chips and you double your stack, now you have 20,000 chips, your stack is probably not worth $1,000. It's probably not worth twice what you paid for it because the last of your chip, like essentially each chip that you add to your stack is worth a little bit less than the chips that were there before. You know, the, the famous saying, all it takes to win a tournament is a chip and a chair. Um, part of what you're paying for when you buy those chips is the chair. And as long as you have a chip, you have a chair. So you, know, you, you have a chance of cashing as long as you still have some chips remaining. So not losing the last of your chips is most important. The last of your chips are your most valuable chips in a tournament. So independent chip modeling is kind of like a way of translating the chips that you have in a tournament into their cash value. It's just a model, it's not perfect, it's one way of, of doing it. But there are different stages of a tournament where the divergence between the number of chips that you have and the cash value of your stack um, is, is greater. So one of those points is, is on the bubble, right? If you're short stacked on the bubble, um, doubling up is not worth very much to you. If you have three big blinds and you're on the bubble of a tournament where you're very close to caching, it could be correct to fold ACES. Not just in a satellite, in a regular tournament, it could be correct to fold ACES. Because doubling up just doesn't do that. Even if you double up to six big blinds, you're still not likely to do better than a min cash. And the chance of getting eliminated and winning nothing is really bad for you. So if you can literally just fold and guarantee or practically guarantee yourself a min cash, it might not be worth trying to double up, even if you have ACES. Uh, it, it, it might not be worth that risk. So that's an example of a time where doubling your chips does not come even close to doubling your equity. The other time that this is really relevant is at the final table or on the final table bubble when you're close to these big payout jumps, the same way you are on the bubble. On the bubble, the difference between not getting anything and getting something like two buy-ins, so it's a pretty big jump. At the final table, you also have big jumps from seat to seat. and In these situations, it really pays to be risk-averse. Accumulating chips has some value. The more chips you have, the more likely you are to win a big prize. But the value isn't linear, meaning doubling your stack does not come anywhere close to doubling the cash value of your chips, and getting eliminated is really, really bad. It's especially bad when there are other players who are shorter than you are. ICM is a really complicated topic. Um, The details, do matter if you're trying to play seriously. And I would recommend for people who you know really want to be good at this and you want to be serious tournament players, you should work with Um, Hold'em resources calculator or some sort of ICM calculator and simulate specific situations and look at things like, just try to change one variable at a time and see, okay what if I had a big stack in this situation? What if I had a small stack in this situation? What if I had a medium stack in this situation? Uh, You should practice experimenting with these things, and you're going to find some surprising results in terms of what sorts of hands you should raise with, or what sorts of hands you should call with, what sorts of hands you should go all in with, in in a variety of situations. It can be quite different from what it would be at normal stage of the tournament. Like if you're accustomed to using a tool like Snapshove that tells you how to play when you have ten big blinds left or eight big blinds left, the Snapshove is going to give you reasonably good results for just like the middle stages of a tournament where you're not particularly close to any big money jump. Snapshove is not going to be very useful uh, for final table play because the Snapshove assumes that your chips have linear value. It's not taking into consideration the value of survival, which is huge out of final table. If you want to just understand this on an intuitive level, I think the way to, to think about it is that the most ICM pressure is on the medium stacks. If we imagine, you know, there there's some people I'm going to call big stacks who have, uh, you know, by far the most chips of anyone. Maybe they have 10 million chips. Uh, there's two big stacks and they have 10 million chips, and then there's a couple people with medium stacks. They have 4 million, 5 million, 6 million chips. And then there's a couple of short stacks and they have like one million chips. The most pressure is on the medium stacks. Those are the people who gain the most by surviving. The small stacks, survival is worth something to them, but if everyone focuses on surviving, it mean meaning that everyone just like folds a lot to the big stacks, uh, then The small stacks are the ones who are going to get eliminated first, so the pressure is sort of on the small stacks to make a move. Um, They're they're still they have some interest to try to conserve their chips, but not that much. The small stacks do kind of have to take some risks and try to uh, either double up or or get eliminated. Although obviously what they're trying to do is double up, Um, but really there's not there's not as much room to bully small stacks like at a final table because the small stacks don't have that that much incentive to be risk-averse. The small stacks should be kind of looking for a hand that they can get all in with and uh, try to accumulate some chips so that they're no longer a small stack. Uh, The big stacks also don't need to be terribly risk-averse except against each other. Um, But when they're playing against a medium stack or certainly against the small stack, they don't have to be that risk-averse because even if they do happen to double up a small stack, they're still gonna have a lot of chips. Or even if they do lose like a small to medium pot against the medium stack, they're still gonna have a lot of chips. Their survival is not threatened. Um, so those players are typically the ones doing the, uh, doing the stealing or doing the bullying. They're taking advantage of the fact that everyone else is supposed to be sort of risk averse and supposed to be doing a lot of folding at this stage of the tournament. Where the pressure really sits is on the medium stacks, the people in, in our example who have 4 million, 5 million, 6 million chips. If there's nine people at a final table and you're in like fifth place, it's a pretty big disaster for you to end up getting ninth when there's still 4 people who have shorter stacks than you are. I mean, it's possible to play correctly and have that happen, but you should be trying pretty hard to avoid that situation. And that means not getting all in, especially not before the flop, not getting all in against somebody who covers you. Like, you really need to be a big favorite to justify putting all your chips in the pot. Um, Getting all in with, like, pocket kings versus ace-queen in that situation, uh, when you're when the player with Ace Queen covers you, is typically bad, um, even though you're a favorite. It's not really that great. Like, if Ace Queen raises and you go all in, your preference really be for Ace Queen to fold, usually. I mean, the details matter here, but like, often your preference would be for Ace Queen to fold in that situation. Uh, Taking the 30% chance of getting eliminated is not worth the 70% chance of winning a larger pot. Because winning a larger pot, you know, maybe it means you get third place instead of fifth place. But getting eliminated means you get ninth place instead of fifth place, and that's really bad. So, as long as there's stacks that are shorter than you, especially stacks that are significantly shorter than you, you really have to be quite risk-averse. It doesn't mean you're folding kings pre-flop, but uh, I'm just kind of giving you an extreme example of like the kind of situation that you're, you're trying to avoid. It does mean that like you do have to fold a lot of hands pre-flop, um, and you have to fold a lot of hands after the flop as well if your opponent plays back at you, so you have to be really careful about just not putting yourself in that spot in the first place. Um, you, know, you don't want to be calling all in with ace-king, which means if you get ace-king, maybe you should just be going all in with it and maximizing your fold equity rather than making a small raise and trying to encourage people to, to shove on you, for instance. Again, details matter, your stack size matters. I'm just giving you like very rough examples. Um, after the flop, you should be doing a lot less continuation betting than usual because check raising becomes a lot more profitable for your opponent. There's a lot more hands you're going to have to fold to a check raise. You're also not going to be able to do as much bluffing on later streets because you don't want to take the risks that that are involved there. So you just don't want to put as much money in the pot. Before the flop, you're reluctant to put money in the pot. After the flop, you're reluctant to put money in the pot. Mostly when you have a medium stack, you just want to be waiting for one of two things to happen. You're waiting for small stacks to get eliminated, or you're waiting for small stacks to double up and become medium stacks, at which point you're gonna become a small stack. Um, that's not what you're hoping is gonna happen, but it might happen. And you're not really gonna be playing that many pots when you're a medium stack. Um, you're gonna be looking for very low risk situations. You, know, you can call a raise from the big blind with pocket threes because when you flop a set, you're typically gonna have a hand that is strong enough to risk elimination. If you don't flop a set, you're gonna get out cheaply. You don't really wanna be calling raises from the big blind with like Queen eight suit, the way you might at a different stage of the tournament. And that's because even when you flop a pair, It's generally not going to be a hand that you can go to the felt with, and you're going to be very exposed, very vulnerable to bluffs from your opponents. Even when you have something like middle pair or your top pair, depending on the situation, it might not be a hand that's good enough to stack off with. And if your opponent knows that he can put that kind of pressure on you and and run some big bluffs, you're going to end up folding eventually, and it's usually better for you to just get out early. So that at least you're just getting a small pot stolen from you rather than a, a big pot stolen from you. So that's the basic concept that I explained in this uh, custom video that I made for this person. And the question that he asked in response uh, after he'd watched the video, he said, I'm, I'm heavily paraphrasing here, but he said something along the lines of um, So I'm just supposed to be doing nothing while my opponents are abusing me, or while my, par- while my opponents are taking advantage of me. And I mean, frankly, the answer is yes. <laughs> I mean, if, if you if you want to put it in such blunt terms, the, the answer is yes. But I think there's a better way of framing it than that. I think there, there's a lot that's going on in that kind of question. Um, I think there's some, like, ego wrapped up in there that we're using the term abuse you know they're they're abusing you um, rather than just like making strategically you're both making strategically correct plays and it just happens to be a situation that favors that player um that that favors your opponent and, and, and disfavors you but i think the nicer way of thinking about this is you make money by doing nothing you make money by folding Right. When when you're a medium stack or even a short stack in a tournament to some degree, you make money by folding because if two other players can test a pot, you immediately make money. I mean, The best case scenario here would be if, if a medium stack got all in against a big stack and you're a short stack or you're a medium stack, that's a really, really, really good situation for you because now there's a chance that that medium stack is going to get eliminated and you're going to move up the pay ladder. Right. You're going to go from having guaranteed ninth place payout, if there's nine players remaining, to having guaranteed eighth place payout, and quite possibly you're going to do even better than eighth place. But even with, without ever putting a chip in the pot, all you had to do was fold, and you made money because these other two players played a big pot against each other. Even if the medium stack doubles through the big stack, that might still be good for you if it turns the big stack into a short stack, for instance. Um, just other people taking on variance is good for you, and you taking on variance is bad for you and good for everyone else. Right? Everyone else gets excited when you play a pot. Once you are involved in a pot, with, uh, especially with a player who covers you, but even if you cover the other player, then there's a chance you're going to eliminate them. Other people are rooting for you to get involved in pots. You should be not getting involved in pots and you should be rooting for everyone else to get involved in pots i think that's the better way to think about it not that you're doing nothing but that you're making like strategic profitable folds you're biding your time you're waiting for very good hands or very good situations and they're going to present themselves one way or the other either they're going to present themselves because you get lucky and you get dealt good cards or they're going to present themselves because you get blinded down to the point where you're a short stack and you have to take some risks and hopefully in the time that that's happening some other people have been eliminated. I mean, what typically should happen. Actually, this is a, this is a good example of this. A couple of years ago, um, someone that I coached made the final table of a WSOP event and his wife uh, you know came out to Las Vegas to watch him play the final table and she knew very little about poker. So I was sitting with her in the like stands where we were watching the the final table, and you know I was I was partly there to to provide coaching, you know, to be watching what was going on, and uh, you know if he wanted to talk about hands or if he just you know wanted some like my thoughts on on how things were going or reads on players or you know whatever I could gather from from watching, like I was there partly to be a coach to him but I was also there to explain to his wife what was going on. So this player had come in, I believe he was in third place overall coming into the final table. And we had a talk and I explained everything that I just explained here about, he was you know, kind of a medium stack, third place. So I was explaining that his basic strategy should be let other players play big pots, you want to avoid big pots, wait for them to get eliminated. So in the first hour, four people got eliminated. And my student had gone from being in uh, in third place to being in fifth place and so now he's in last place but last is you know the, the, the payout difference from ninth to fifth was pretty significant so although his like his standing had decreased he had gone from third place to, to fifth place he had also eliminated any chance of getting ninth or eighth or seventh or sixth and uh, so his wife, Said to me, um, you know, I, I when when they showed like, at the first break, or I guess it was after two hours, this happened. So at the first break, after two hours, you know, his wife said, to me, "Should be, should we be worried? You know, he was in third place, and now he's in last place." And I was like, "No, he made forty thousand dollars in the last two hours <laughs> by doing nothing." And and then she was excited once I framed it for her in in that way. And I can understand why it seems frustrating. You know, you, you it's more rewarding to be active than to be passive. Right? It feels like we we all want to be like masters of our destiny. We want to be making things happen. We don't want to be doing nothing while other players abuse us. Um, But but the truth is that's how you make money at a a final table. Unless you're, if you're one of the big stacks or just, you know, if if you have an opportunity to to put pressure on someone who you cover, go for it. But you want to be avoiding situations where you might potentially lose a large pot. And I think that you want to think about that as an opportunity. You want to, you want to think of it in terms of you're making money by folding rather than um, you're, you're getting abused. Uh, I mean, yeah, to some extent, I guess you could you could say that you are that when people are taking advantage of you or, or pressuring you or whatever, um, but that's just a feature of the situation. They get to do that. There's nothing. There's no better strategy for you than letting them do that in small pots, right? The only alternative is that you get abused in big pots, right? That you you decide to get stubborn before the flop and you defend your big blind. You get stubborn on the flop and you call with bottom pair, and eventually you end up folding because you're not going to stack off with bottom pair. So like. Maybe, that's, maybe your ego feels assuaged by that, that you feel like you like, put up a fight. But, I mean, you really just played straight into that player's hands. He won a bigger pot from you than he would have if you had just folded pre-flop. So you want to make sure that you're not bringing your knife to a gunfight. Like, if you're going to get involved in a pot, you need like good ammunition to um, to get involved. And mostly you just want to get out of the way and let your opponents steal cheap pots from you. Because the alternative is either that they steal big pots, or that you risk getting eliminated in last place when you could have just waited and, and moved several spots up the um, up the payout jump. Now, of course, by taking those risks, you do also increase your chances of winning first place. But that's not usually a good trade-off in a tournament. Um, there's, there's more like ego talk involved here. Sometimes you hear these people being, like, "I'm not playing to ladder up; I'm playing to win." I mean, like, if you're if you really if truly what you care about is winning more than money. I guess I shouldn't have said it in that <laughs> patronizing voice. Um, if what you care about like, I guess that's, that's, that's the question you need to ask yourself. Do you care more about winning than about maximizing your EV? Because the way to maximize your EV is not to play to win, typically. Again, there are, details matter, there are different situations. But typically, the way that you maximize your EV is not by playing to win. Uh, you want to be playing to ladder once you're at the, the final table. There's a penalty for winning. The way David Sklansky explains this I think makes sense. If you were at a cash game and you won all the chips, you would win all the money. If you're in a tournament and you win all the chips, you don't get all the money. That means there's a penalty for winning all the chips, right? You can you can win significant money in a tournament despite losing all of your chips, and that's not true in a cash game. So you should care a lot less about accumulating all the chips in a tournament than you do, or, yeah, than, than, than you would in a cash game. In, in a cash game, the chips would have linear value. In a tournament, your survival has value, and um, Most stages of the tournament, we can kind of ignore that, even though it's always true. It's not that significant of an effect earlier in the tournament, but on the bubble or at a final table, it is a significant effect, and you have to leave your ego aside. If you care about maximizing your EV, um, you have to leave your ego aside and bide your time and make diligent discipline folds. I'm going to uh, not turn you over because I'll be there too, but we're going to go bring in the Nates and I'll just remind you one more time if you are interested in custom videos or any kind of coaching, you can find more information at thinkingpoker.net slash coaching. You can contact me, Andrew at Thinking Poker. You can uh, tweet or DM me at Thinking Poker on Twitter. Enjoy the interview.
1: Um, but I'm a big fan of the of the podcast guys I think poker podcasts are really hard to do well to be honest um, and so I'm happy to be on I've listened to almost every episode that I can. Wow
2: that is uh, that's fantastic hey. Thanks.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I knew you had heard the show. It, it is it is uh, news and surprising to me that you've heard that much of, of the show. And I'm, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm flattered by anyone who listens to the show. Well, I, but I imagine you're a little busier than some of our uh, audience members.
1: I hate listening to, like, politics podcasts and news podcasts because, like, I've just kind of, it's in my head all the time, right? Um, so I listen to, like, basketball podcasts or poker podcasts or or food podcasts or you know something like that right and so um so it's it's perfect because like i said like i'm not trying to flatter you guys too much but like i do think that like for me anyway i'm like a very like visual learner um so for poker you're kind of like going over hand histories and stuff like that like podcasts like that just don't really work all that well i don't think at least for me but you know having conversations like having the range of guests that you have who are like i think more representative like of the actual Spectrum of poker players that you would encounter in different settings,
0: I think, is really is really interesting to me. There, there's no great. such thing as flattering us too much. Feel free to go on. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it's interesting. I, I think of what we do as like
2: very, very, very broadly analogous to what you do, where we sit down and, and let, we said like Let's make a podcast that's actually about poker, like what it actually is, not the same podcast that everybody else is making." Yeah. Whereas you sat down, and you said like Wait a minute, this is all." terrible people say this is analysis but like there are obvious things you could do that would make this legitimate analysis um so uh you know broadly i think we're we're sort of up to the same thing what is the thinking poker podcast of basketball
1: um i mean there's actually a podcast called thinking basketball which i've also been on interestingly
0: (laughs) (laughs) that answers
2: that question (laughs)
1: um there's a podcast called uh dunked on which is a guy named nate duncan who kind of sounds like you other nate so that's also pretty weird right oh, um awesome. wait, wait. there's so there's another nate wow okay i gotta meet this yeah. guy we should have a joint a triumvirate you know nba slash poker nate podcast i don't know but yeah you guys sound kind of alike for sure anytime
2: anytime <laughs> um, right so this is a poker podcast our audience will be mad if we don't ask at least a couple questions about poker um and I'd like to ask you one about sort of the the meta level of strategy. Like if you were going to be a poker pro now, how how would you go about it? Like you couldn't just sit back and play a vanilla strategy and make lots and lots of money just through volume. So just how would you go about looking for places to try to get an edge on the field?
1: So I'm um I've tried to so I actually played poker um, professionally for a couple of years in the mid-aughts. Um, and I was a online Limit Hold'em Pro and like, and probably pretty good, um, you know, beat the party fifteen thirty through 100, 200 limit games. And then kind of after the, not Black Friday, but the UIGEA, um, it kind of dried up, right? I think it was like being a little bit tilty. I think limit was getting a lot tougher, right? But also like taking a lot of the action players out of the field made a big difference. Um, but so now I'm actually kind of, um, trying to play poker more regularly, which might mean, um, you know, I tell myself it should be, like, one poker weekend a month. It, it turns out to be one every three months or so, given um, <laughs> the time of year that I'm in. Um, but I am more and more trying to play, like, a fairly explicit GTO style. Um, what that means, of course, something we can discuss, right? But, like, I kind of, you know, I don't have the advantage of having a ton of empirical data on, like, what the player pool tendencies are, right? Um I mean, you can make some guesses. Probably, people might fold a little bit too much on the river in some games I play in, especially in tournaments. For example, um, you know, there are some things you can maybe infer, but like, but I'm probably better off kind of assuming that I have to have a strategy that can work against opponents who may play differently than I might expect. And so, um, so more and more, I'm trying to like, you know, train myself. I'm using the DTO app, I guess. Um, you know, I look at various coaching stuff, and I try to be um, try to be pretty good about, you know, for example. Um, I used to be kind of a big ball kind of player and trying to find ways to use smaller bet sizes on all streets, for example. Um, I think I've always been fairly adept at at having a pretty decent bluffing range, um, which I think a lot of people at my skill level might not. Um, but you know, it's even more true now with um, with you know studying what I think is the proper way to play in the games I'm playing in. So I'm I'm trying to be pretty analytical about
2: things. <laughs> One cool thing about being in our position uh, is that we have seen, in some sense, an entire intellectual history of something. Like, you can almost view poker strategy before the mid-early aughts as as prehistoric, and
0: yeah.
2: a- a- almost all the innovation that has ever happened in poker uh, we can see. And there are all these cool cultural influences and cause and effect, and that's great. Um, if you had to... Like, 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 what are the big, uh, Copernican revolutions in your mind in, in poker? Two that get mentioned a lot are, so three betting before the flop and, you know, maybe calling more out of the big blind. Are are there things that you see as milestones in the intellectual history of poker that are maybe underrated from your perspective?
1: I mean, it is funny because when I played Limit Hold'em, it was, I was purely learning by row, right? And I would like post on two plus two and like, and like look at a lot of hands, but like I never thought about range construction or never thought about like all these concepts that are, are so important now, right? Um, and so now there's kind of the risk of getting like like too abstract, I think. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, to me, the fundamental notion is like having a, a obviously as fundamentals, it seems like having a mixed strategy, right? Um, I think one thing people miss a little bit if they're using solvers, which can I kind of dabble in, I'm not an expert, right, um, or using GTO apps is, um, I think those apps try to get you to play perfectly when actually a lot of it is that, hey, in a great number of situations, you can play um, a hand in several different ways and they're roughly equally good, right, um, as long as you're maintaining some type of balance over the long run. Um, so to me, in some ways, it's like actually pretty... Um, a, enlightening, and B, it feels kind of freeing, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, I don't have to worry about, like, okay, well, I felt like I didn't want to check away this particular flock with um, with middle pair and a, and a gut shot, right? Um, but I probably should some of the time, and you don't necessarily stress out about, like, playing a hand perfectly, you know what I mean? Um, I do wish some of the apps, like, would tell you kind of, okay, here are things that clearly are not anywhere close to equilibrium, so either you screwed up or um, you better have like a good exploitative strategy, right? Um, mm-hmm. I was in some habits where I was just like, um, would make big gigantic over bets. Um, Cause for some reason I thought, oh, it's hard to play against, right? It's hard to play against these big over bets. And it makes me not have to make like tougher decisions. Right? Um, so one thing about like, I think trying to study some of these GTO strategies, like realizing that like, it's okay to have like a lot of marginal decisions, you know? Most poker decisions are quite marginal, and um, if you try to play a way that avoids tough decisions, then you will, number one, probably fold too many hands, for example, out of the big blind, right? Um, And number two, probably make these big overbets too often. Um, Maybe not even for bluff, either for value or bluffing, right? But in a case where it's like, okay, um, I'm not as experienced a post-op player as my opponent, so I'm just going to kind of use like a David versus Goliath strategy and try to go all in a lot, right? I mean I think at some point like maybe it's okay if you're trying to get from um okay to intermediate, but those things are actually pretty bad a lot of the time, right? There are a time and a place for a GTO overbet. Um but not nearly as often as I was as I was using it, I think, kinda of in the games I was playing.
0: Have you read <laughs> I, um Michael Acevedo's book, uh, Modern Poker Theory? I have, yeah. Um <laughs> I
1: read a uh sent me a draft copy I've not seen the final copy but I assume it's largely the same yeah
0: he's got a, a great explanation in there that I, I think really I mean e- even for me this helped click something a little bit and I think for a lot of people you know it would be much more of a, a light bulb even um, where he's talking about uh, I think he's being in a small blind with maybe uh, 12 big blinds or something like that that uh, shoving pocket aces is actually a bigger mistake than shoving seven deuce offset. Right. If, if you think about yeah. how, how valuable it is to not shove aces in there, like to either to limp or to make a, a small raise, you're actually giving up more. I mean, obviously, it's like more plus EV to shove aces than to shove do seven. But the like comparative difference between uh, doing something other than just going all in uh, and, and going all in, you're actually giving up more EV by, by jamming aces than you are by jamming seven deuce off, which I found um, pretty like eye opening and, and evocative.
1: Yeah, I know. One thing, I'm always trying to overcome all the kind of ingrained habits I had as a um, as a Limit Hold'em player, playing mostly, you know, six max games, I guess now, like, gosh, like, you know, 14 or 15 years ago, right? Um, and so there's a tendency to, like, not slow play very much at all. I mean, Limit Hold'em, especially um, six max games in 2005 or whatever, we're, we're kind of very big, like, you know, dick measuring contests, right? So yeah. we raise you re-raise four times if you have a good hand and three times if you don't, you know what I mean? Um, and so, you know, so trying to, like, pump the brakes a little bit, trying to think about what, what my checking raise is, you know, having, like, a, a um, you know, you bet the flop, check raising the turn range, right? I think about that kind of thing a lot. I don't plan enough to really implement these strategies to get very far down the game trees, you know what I mean? But, like, um, but I do think, like, um, the notion of being able to play your hands at different speeds is important and also just like again not being not being paralyzed of like saying okay well um i am going to have like a a multi-street plan for this hand it's going to be maybe a flexible hand depending on the run out and kind of which card gives me a range advantage whatever else but like you know i mean it's um it's fun i actually feel like in this period where i have not got to play very much i feel like i've i've turned some corners um but it is hard. I, I don't know how often you guys are, are playing or not, right? I feel like if I'm playing, um, you know, once a month, and I'm playing mostly tournaments, which are high variance, obviously, like once a month, you can almost get enough feedback for how you're kind of improving or not. It's obviously very noisy, right? Um, once every three months, it's pretty hard, I think, um, especially because if you're not playing very often, then um, then I find, like, I get, like, I have a lot of build-up. I'm, like, excited, okay, I'm going to go play poker this weekend um, in Atlantic City, whatever, see my friends, right? I mean, the problem is, like, a lot of time, poker is, like, quite boring, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, especially turn up, tournament poker can have phases where it's exclusively boring, we're not getting any, any cards or you're kind of on, on the bubble, whatever else. And so, um, so yeah, um, so, you know, the kind of detachment between, like, the studying the game and... Um, which is really fun. I kind of do, you know, I kind of consider like a, a, almost a a good way to like relax, you know what I mean? Like solving puzzles or something. And then the playing it, you know, I think I'm like, uh, sometimes I'm playing super duper well. Like usually if I come in for the weekend, the kind of the first session I play, I'm like just, I'm just being very observant, right? And looking for live reads and like using a randomizer and like, um, writing down my hands right and then by the second or third day i'm like i just kind of want to get like a big hand and (laughs) and shove here or go home you know and so the mentality is i think is can
2: be very yeah i i I, for that i recommend getting a backer it's a great way to uh keep yourself disciplined (laughs) and write down a lot of hands etc that's that's easily the best uh play better study better technique i've ever found
1: yeah it's hard It's it's also like a little bit hard to know um to know kind of what stakes that I should play, right? Um, I think I often kind of chicken out of the opportunity to take shots at some bigger games that if I'm playing occasionally I can afford, um, but which I might um, be negative EV in or neutralish EV with kind of high variance, you know what I mean? Um, So it's not strictly like, I know. I mean, I know I enjoy poker. I'm not always sure, like, what my objective is from, a, like, a meta standpoint or kind of why I'm playing in any particular way. Um, and so that's, like, that's one thing that's tough as kind of a, a former pro, now now amateur, you know. On the other hand, I think it's actually, like, a lot easier in some ways not to tilt. Um, like I said, I think tilt is... There are different forms of tilt, and like, having, like, do you always have the best mentality is maybe not, right? But I don't really, like... I don't ever get into, into like, a... C or D game tilt, you know, whereas I did when I actually played for a living because you play for a living and your living consists of like, you know, getting sucked down on a bunch of rivers and losing <laughs> 6,000 bucks or something, that's like a pretty tough way to make a living. And and so, um, I have a little bit more sense of, of, um, equanimity now.
2: Hey, what you do now seems to involve a lot of variants too, though, like articles <laughs> can perform well or badly people can start hating you for no reason. Yeah. That's you know, yeah. out of your control. I mean, do, do, uh, do you say, do you think that's true? Did poker help you prepare for that? How, how does that feel?
1: Oh, for sure. No, I, look, I think poker is um, very unique among, I'm say a discipline as far as kind of forcing you, number one, to see the distance between, or the difference between process and results. Um, you know, Forcing you to say, yeah, I'm going to make a play that um, that I know might look bad, but is the correct play in the end, right? Forcing you to kind of just be very um, very skeptical of kind of people's behavior and kind of momentum, and so it's really good training for um, for kind of dealing with because there are swings, right? Like, um, you know, we basically make one big forecast every two years, right? The midterm and the presidential election, um, and it's not even clear that you can actually kind of. Play your hand the right way and still get criticized for it. You know what I mean. But there's like a large amount of of variance. Um, but you know, I, I'm I'm I kind of look at like it a little bit as like um, it's kind of all a big free roll. You know what I mean. <laughs> um, it's kind of ridiculous that 538 blew up so much in the first place just for me kind of pointing out that hey, here's what the polls say and they're and they're usually right. Um, I think it was frustrating when in 2016. Um where you said, hey, people are way overconfident here. If you model this carefully, then, then Clinton is not that heavy a favorite. But like but you know, it's not like I haven't experienced both um both sides of that. And I do kind of um I do kind of directly analogize it to like making a deep run in the main event or something, right? Where you kind of you're judged in like a very small number of hands, um, that people watching um may not have the same context that you have, um, that an expert might feel very differently about kind of how you played your hands, um, versus an amateur might. Um, and you kind of go through life being, um, maybe a little bit misunderstood, but at the same time, you would much, much, much rather make that deep run than not, you (laughs) know, I think every person would. And so, um, so I think I'm kind of fortunate to be in, in the position I am, but, you know, I always also tell myself like, okay, there is a world, um, outside of politics. I mean, like, like I have more friends who are involved in poker than politics, it's just because, like, I don't, I want to, like, I don't know, I want to hedge against um, politics because, who knows, like, one more forecast that's perceived to be bad or I just get burned out. I mean, it's, um, it's something which I look at as a career and I actually enjoy, like, the modeling part of it itself is pretty interesting. Um, but I'm not, like, really a political junkie, which I think kind of helps me sometimes to, um,
2: to avoid getting too wrapped up in things. So this ties into something else I wanted to, sorry, Andrew, do you, do you want to go next? No, bad. Uh, uh This ties into something else I wanted to ask you about, um, which is like your learning style. Uh, and it sounds like you know lots and lots and lots about certain aspects of politics and other stuff you keep yourself uh, conversant with. And when you were talking to Tyler Cowen on conversations with Tyler uh, a few years ago, you said something interesting about management, which is that you think that in an efficient way, and here I'm paraphrasing or recasting what you say, so you can feel free to correct me if you think I'm miscasting it, um, is that you give sort of a T-shaped um, uh, distribution of attention to what your direct reports are doing. That is, you mostly keep a keep an eye on what they're doing and then every so often you quote unquote micromanage and you look at every little detail of what they're doing and you yeah. find that to be very uh, productive uh, for whatever it's worth both as a manager and as a direct report I think that's very productive too um, is this like a general feature of your learning or your sort of meta approach to to um, applying your intellectual energy efficiently this sort of t-shaped idea where you mostly cover your basis uh, then occasionally just go absolutely all out
1: no, I, I think that's right. You know, I have like, you know, four or five or six things that I'm really passionate about, you know what I mean? And I kind of, but I um, but I don't have that many things that I'm medium passionate about, you know what I mean? I'm like, um, I'm not very conversant, for example, in, um, in like TV or movies, which is not because I don't like think there are amazing television series, especially these days, right? I'll catch up on movies sometimes, obviously, right? But like, you kind of have to like pick things to delve quite deeply into and I, and I find that more rewarding. Um as a management style it's a little bit um trickier because I think I think it depends on the type of person, right? But you know, good management for many scenarios requires like just a lot of time on the ground. Um and so, you know, so more and more, probably more since I talked to Tyler a couple of years ago, I've tried more and more to like um, to outsource day-to-day management at five thirty-eight um, to make sure that um, things can function pretty well when um, when I'm not there. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to dig into the technical problems for sure, right? Um, and because I think like modeling elections is really um, is really quite hard. Um, I mean, you know, just today we had we caught a bug in our forecast so I was up until three a.m. and I get up at seven to fix it, right? Like these things are pretty hard because you're kind of combining. Um, a difficult empirical problem with um, with programs that are kind of fairly complicated. And therefore, um, you know, if you have tens of thousands of lines of code or thousands of lines of code then things can go wrong, right? And so yeah. um, so I'm still kind of very deeply involved in um, the technical parts of Five Thirty Eight and in trying to give people advice around technical matters and about kind of trying to like um, create some guardrails for, for like what I understand our mission Or if you want to put it differently, kind of like our our brand to be, you know what I mean? At the same time, like like 538 does a way larger diversity of stuff than we would if it was just me. And the staff is way more diverse in many respects than it would be if it was just me. Um, And that's really important, too, because, you know, if you hire a bunch of um, bright, mostly young um, journalists, you're kind of selecting people who kind of question authority, basically, um, and are critical. Then you're going to have people who have their own opinions about kind of how a newsroom should be run, um, what website should be doing, what the purpose of our work is, and so um, so you know I'm I'm very much not like a a, I'm not a top down dictator. It wouldn't work anyway, so I don't really have a choice.
2: Wait, wait, wait. So if there's a bug on five thirty eight, it's actually you who fixes it at seven in the morning.
1: It depends on whether I introduce the bug or not, right? But no, <laughs> for, for for our election models, I'm actually I'm actually coding, um, at least kind of the actual. So I code in Stata, um, which I know is not one of the hit programming languages, but it's kind of what I learned 15 years ago, and it's a pretty good language, I think. Um, so yeah, I'm actually going in, and obviously we have like a lot of people who can who can um, also check for errors and implement things um, on the sports side. Then you know that's more shared between different people here. But no, I'm actually doing like. Um, I'm doing a lot of the very, very detailed work still, and I think that's kind of where it's where I think I add some value still. and I also find it like to some extent, pretty interesting.
2: That's really cool. Can you say anything else just about the? So I'm I guess you know more about me than I need to explain, but I, I would be curious, like what sorts of like 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 Nate Silver fixes a bug. He goes to his MacBook. Opens it up, uh, then, <laughs> like what? What happens next? Like, like, like what um, program? Like, you, you, you submit a a, a, a pull request to, to GitHub. Like, what, what, what happens? I'm not
1: sure if it's quite that organized a process, right? But you, you see something that clearly isn't right, or that your word isn't right, right? And you kind of try to um, try to trace it back, right? I mean, these these programs are are quite big. Um, I think if you like actually took our primary model and out the code it would be like you know 250 pages or something of of um, of text and so um, so you kind of have like a little bit of a of a um, there's probably some technical term version of this that I'm not using right but like it's a little bit of like kind of a finding a a needle in the haystack problem right Um, where you see something that's clearly wrong and you have to go back and and um, discover why that is I mean it's 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 pretty challenging to be honest, and one problem I guess I have is like kind of um, I'm not always good at keeping things simple. You know what I mean? Like kind of as I've done this for longer and longer, like I always I always want to like kind of say, okay, well, let's take some problems that are more challenging and try to try to model our way around those, right? Um, but anytime you introduce more parameters into a model, I, I'm not talking about the typical like thing. I mean, you can also introduce more parameters and like overfit a model. I'm pretty good about that, right? Um, but I'm just saying, like you can add more nuances that are maybe meant to actually present a more robust probability distribution, right? Or kind of um, maybe average several different forecasting methods together, or whatever else. Things that are supposed to be fail-safes in case something goes wrong. Um, but at some point, it just kind of becomes like a lot of um, a lot of just code to manage, um, and it can be it can be potentially pretty breakable potentially.
2: Yeah, it's tough because you like the standard solution to make sure you're like like my code doesn't work how do I make sure my code works is something called test driven design or even if you're not doing that like having tests for your code but it's not like you have a string and you need to make sure that the string is lowercase and you can write a little code that says like call this method and then at the end make sure you know, assert that the string is lowercase like it doesn't really work with statistical things so um, is that something you even try to do like uh do do sort of like like do you have a test suite for your code
1: no i mean the thing is like i am kind of like a a um i'm very self-taught yeah. when it comes to programming right i've never taken like a computer science class um and so you know so yeah i don't even know what like a test suite is per se right i know how to program um do files and stata i think i'm a reasonably elegant coder although it's taken like a fair amount of time um I'm like usually able to figure out um, some fairly creative workarounds if the first approach I'm having isn't working, um, you know, but then I'm, I'm sending whatever code I have, either uploading it or sending it on Slack usually and then people who are like actual kind of programmer programmers are the people who are kind of taking care of steps from there. Um, so, so yeah.
2: Cool. That is interesting. I'm sure you have a question, Andrew, and I've been monopolizing sure. things so far. So I should, I should I pass the baton.
0: I, I'd be curious just to talk a little bit, just like your your background in poker. I mean, how, how you got started in it, both um, just how how it came onto your radar at all. Like if you remember the, the first time that you played poker, and then also you know why it was something that you wanted to do for a living.
1: Um. So. The first time I played seriously, and I actually, you know, I come from a family where, like, my grandma was, like, a good um, gin rummy player and a good bridge player. Um, and she was very competitive, right, that if you showed her your hand, right, you were concealing your hand, and she would take advantage of that and tell you, you gotta, you know, <laughs> you know, just for your own advice, right, I can see your hand, right, but I'm not going to tell you again. Um, but the first time I really played poker was, um, so I, um, I did high school debate. Um, at East Lansing High School, and I taught for a couple of years at debate camp in the summers. Um, which,
0: which camp did you teach at?
1: So um, I taught at uh, at Michigan State. I think it
0: was called the Spartan Debate Institute. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm wearing my Boston Debate League hoodie as well. Oh, we speak. cool.
1: Yeah, and they, I mean, one thing by the way about like poker tournaments specifically—they do kind of remind me a lot of um, of debate tournaments, right? And kind of the process of like when you know when you kind of get maybe. Um, pass the money right and kind of the room starts cleaning out of people but like kind of the pressure bill anyway it, that's something i like um yeah. but um but you know at night at debate camps then um my um my former debate coach a guy named will repco um was into poker um tried to um teach me a little bit also but there was a nightly game it was actually um uh seven card stud high low with a declare and no qualifier um which is a fun game, but also a game where if you have like even like um, even a little bit of poker sense, then you can actually make pretty decent money. Yeah. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, it's it's the, easy the, to make big mistakes
2: in that game if you don't know each I think the Sklansky line on that game is that it's great Hello? they're only de- yeah well it's an amazing poker game wonderful very skillful etc but there are two problems first the best players have too big of an edge and yeah. second it would be extremely easy for for uh, collusion just to uh, absolutely crush the game but go on
1: no i think so i think there was not collusion but like there were people who were who were pretty bad right yeah. um and i remember like making like i want to say like three or four hundred bucks playing at night um, these are all college kids, right? And so, you know, and you, when you're a college kid, then like making three or 400 bucks on the side, um, I'm not sure what the debate camp salary was. It was probably not bad for a college kid, but not good in an objective sense. Right. Um, you know, that really added to my income and that was nice, but I remember like the day when debate camp ended, um, a couple of us decided to go to like, I think it was called like the Soaring Eagle or something Indian yep. casino in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, um, and played, um... Hold them for the first time, I'm pretty sure it was like maybe 1-2 uh, or 2-4 limit Hold'em, like the smallest game they spread, maybe 1-2, right? Um, and I just had no idea what I was doing got my kind of ass kicked. Um, I just felt really bad about it. Like, I basically lost all the money that I had made playing poker um, with the other debate campers and like, uh, you know, I had to borrow money from my friend, which just kind of I just kind of hate having to do that kind of thing, right? And so, you know, that kind of um, damper my poker plans for a while, but that was like, so, um, so I'm 42, that was like 1998 roughly, um, which was, I guess, kind of in the rounders poker boom. Mm-hmm. Um, and then five years later, kind of the moneymaker poker boom happened. Um, I was working as a consultant. I had a friend at work, um, who said, Hey, I want to start a, a home game. Um, and being very competitive he's gonna start in a few weeks or something right I don't know if it's at home or at a bar or something um, and being very competitive I started kind of playing um, online to sharpen up for um, for this game first I played like on Yahoo poker where um, where it was free right and I kind of realized like I think now like poker doesn't work if there's not if there's not money involved or at least some agreed upon um, Reason to kind of concentrate and play as though it were money on the uh, line.
0: E- ego can work,
1: but yeah, ego can work. But like, but Yahoo Poker was not, I think, improving my skills very much. Yeah. Um, but there was some site. I think it was Pacific Poker. I'm pretty sure it was Pacific Poker that like offered kind of 25 bucks, um, or maybe 100 bucks even. Right. No strings attached. You could just kind of log in, enter your info, right, and if you play enough hands, you can keep the money. Um, and so, um, so I, I did that. And um, actually ran with that first hundred bucks for quite a while, but eventually, um, eventually busted it, and then like kind of deposited like another fifty bucks or something on my own. Um, And like a lot of poker players, kind of I'm sure I just ran really well at first, right? I never, you know, losing that first hundred bucks was the um, actually, and that and the Mount Pleasant casino thing were the only two times I've ever been like kind of down for my lifetime in poker, right? you know, Pacific Poker was also like, people were really bad. Um, I remember like I actually kind of created like a, um, I went to Kinko's and figured out like a color-coded hand chart that showed like the all inequity of hands um, nine ways or whatever, which is like not actually um, <laughs> <laughs> approximation for the equity you might realize. Um, but just kind of trying to play vaguely tight. Um, in this kind of terrible user interface, very slow site, where it made people very kind of tilty. Right, I remember like being back at my parents for Christmas one time, and like, um, you know, was drinking like some, some whiskey, or whatever. And every ten minutes, you get a good hand and play it, and just kind of play it straightforwardly, and you would, you know, wind up making quite a bit of money that way. It's hard to, it's hard to explain, even though I'm sure it did run really well. It's hard to explain like, just how bad um, the average specific poker regular was, all the way up to like fifteen thirty limit hold'em. Um, eventually though I discovered um, party poker I um, mostly focused on um, 6 max games and kind of um, evolved my way into a strategy that I think was pretty decent where basically like um, people I think were taught to play way too tightly in limit hold'em especially if they're playing 6 max or or you know especially the game's not full you know 4 max or something right so people just kind of like um, fold too often not be aggressive enough so i kind of adopted the style of people at the time that was like very loose aggressive i think it's actually probably pretty close to um pretty close to um like a not sophisticated version of like how a computer would play but like in terms of having like the right basic frequencies you know what i mean um playing a lot of hands raising a lot um bluffing is weird limit hold my kind of you know but there is an element for occasionally bluffing or kind of over over representing your hand in, in different ways um so, um, so I think by kind of like just playing a proper aggression level and and um, having had even that little bit of poker experience before the um, money maker boom, I mean those two things, plus running well, um, helped me to um, to make a living playing poker um, for a couple of years.
0: Were you game theory aware at that time? I mean, it sounds like you were using some mathematical principles and, and intuition to, to model your play, but were you thinking explicitly about game theory at all? Was that on your radar?
1: No, I mean I was learning entirely, I mean I should have been, right? Um, but I think I was learning like entirely by rote, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, I would use Poker Tracker and say okay, well, okay, actually I can play um, a 6-5 suited under the gun, 6-handed is marginal, I can play it if I feel like it, that kind of thing. Um, I would post a lot of hands on 2 plus 2 and talk about those with people. Um but I, I never kind of really stepped back and and thought about things in a conceptual way. Whereas like now it's like the opposite problem almost. Um, I think I kind of like stumbled into things right like um, you know so one thing I would do is kind of play um, play a lot of suited connectors um, because it kind of actually gives you better board coverage. I didn't think of it that way. I thought of it as okay, well this is nice because if I um, if I play eight seven suited and the board comes middle cards, I actually have a hand. if it's high cards, then people always give me credit for having high cards, so I can, I can, you know, I can kind of make money either way, right? Um, but that's kind of stumbling into the notion of board coverage or something, right? There was a big concept called, uh, called initiative, um, which I think people still <laughs> use. Um, and it's kind of funny now looking at solvers, where like, it doesn't have a memory per se of who bet what on the previous street. It's just kind of how do you get to that game state Um, and so they're kind of very, very sloppy concepts that kind of maybe kind of scratched a little bit at the surface of, um, of more modern poker theory, but was a long way away from it.
0: Yeah. I I go back and forth on how much credit we should give the kind of like human or or two plus two community of that time. In in some sense, we were doing kind of what, um, is doing in terms of running a bunch of. Trials and trying to exploit each other and like converging on an optimal strategy through like yeah. our hive, our hive mind. And I mean, there's a fair number of things that we kind of came across. Well, but so like it, it, you can point to certain things, like oh, we sort of figured this out. But then you can point to other things and be like, oh, we were so far off. Like what were we were even doing. I mean, even a few years ago, um, compared to you know the, the like, continuation betting, or I uh, think there's a lot of examples of, of things. Uh, like that. But yeah, I feel like initiative is a good example of something that people used to think was really important and no one talks about at all now.
1: Yeah, I'm one of those people who thinks that it's probably a debate in the community, right? I'm one of those people who thinks that if you were to take um, any somewhat studious um, two-five Pro a Pro like a regular, right? And put them in like um, a whole game from 12 years ago or 15 years ago that they would be one of the best players in the world, right? Obviously, that person, um, you know, play, other players would catch up, I guess, eventually, but, like, I do think, like, the theory has evolved um, evolved a lot, and I kind of, I've never wanted to go back and kind of looked up my old 2++ 2 because plus 2 plus, I'm sure I just said stuff that was, like, just so, just so wrong, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, what I mean, it, it is kind of amazing you didn't have someone who was, like, just leaps and bounds beyond, maybe Tom Braun or someone, I don't know, right, but who was just kind of leaps and bounds beyond um, the competition,
0: Yeah, I I think you kind of did. I I think Dwan's a good example, but there were people who who would... Blood, Sweat, Tears was was an early one from uh, Party Poker, if you were following the No Limit stuff at all. And they would pick up on what Nate called those Copernican revolutions of, you know, they're like, oh, actually, people are folding way too much to three bets. I'm just going to start three betting a bunch. And then they would sort of look like a god or... What's uh, Mahatma with the uh, overbedding, uh, playing playing heads up overbetting rivers, and the people were like overfolding to those, or people were capping their ranges too much. And I, I, mean, I think maybe he was kind of game theory informed in that sense of like recognizing when people had capped ranges that just like overbedding a polarized range was a good way to take advantage of that. But I think there were people who, who glommed onto those things quickly, and they did become those kind of like legends of their uh, of their time as a result of that one. I guess I'm kind of channeling Ed Miller here with this. Uh, you yeah, know, every gambler yeah. has like one good insight, and they just milk it until it like stops working
1: no I mean I think I I I assume the whim rates were were much much higher than so maybe I'm contradicting what I said earlier and there probably were people who were like who were just kicking total ass and and winning at rates that are not really sustainable very often now
0: yeah I think that I mean people used to talk regularly about having I mean obviously you have to have considerable suspicion towards anyone's like self-proclaimed win rate, but I mean, people used to estimate having win rates of you know eighty to one hundred percent in MTTs, which for um, for online MTTs, you know, now we're we're talking about maybe low double digits for for a lot of people in in a lot of games. Live is a little bit different, but
2: and a lot of those people were way too lazy to falsify graphs. I mean, <laughs> like way too lazy.
1: <laughs> no, there wasn't laziness. that I was, you know, I kind of wish I had. So poker wasn't really the only thing I was doing. I was also doing um, baseball prospectus at the time. But like, I wish I'd, I wish I'd played more. You know, for some pe- reason, I just assumed that okay, here's this um, this ATM that with high variance, I can just kind of in an hour pull a couple hundred bucks from this ATM on average every time I want, right? And there's no particular reason to like play all that many hands. Now, I mean, it was so naive, right? If I had known that, like. Um, especially the boom for, like, kind of mid to high stakes limit hold'em was going to dissolve pretty fast. I mean, I would have played, like, I would have played twice as much, even though it's a grind, and been twice as disciplined about, about playing when I was attentive and not distracted with other things, and I wish I'd done more of that.
2: Yeah. I have to say, Alex Jacob, who is now more famous for Jeopardy, is, like, the one guy I can remember who is, like, uh, I'm not sure I can go to sleep. No, I can't go to go to dinner with you. Like this is not going to last forever. This is not going to last forever. I've got to. So I'm I'm making bets to see who can play the most hands. Like and uh and, and and he did very well. He did very well. So, but like he's the one. I don't know anybody else who was thinking that way.
1: No, it's like not a very disciplined community, right? I don't mean that in a bad way. Like one of the things I I um I love about poker players actually is like. Poker players are actually some of the least uptight people about like money and and stuff like that that you'll meet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're pretty easygoing and pretty excited. At least the ones I know and I've become friends with. Um, so, it, so it kind of defies the stereotype I think a lot of outsiders might have about kind of um, about you know the generosity of many poker players. Again, the ones I know at least, right? Um, and kind of the lack in some ways of of nittiness. But this is all probably self-selected based on the people that I I. Find enjoyable to
2: talk to. Uh, it certainly fits my experience, and there are wonderful stories about that in the biggest game in town and many other books. Um, I don't know if you. Um, I don't know, Andrew. You you would agree with that also?
0: Yeah, I think so. What do you What do you get out of playing poker now? I mean, when you're playing so infrequently, I don't imagine you're really relying on the the money for anything. If um, but what what what's the impetus for one to keep playing at all?
1: Um. I'm not sure. And I think, like, for a while it was, like, um, for a while it was kind of like a point of pride to, like, get to a point of, like, of like, competence plus. You know what I mean? I kind of, like, um, made, like, like a 10-point scale or zero is, like, someone who's literally never played poker before and 10 is, like, the best poker player in the world, right? And, like, kind of how far can you get on that chart? Having probably once been, I'm not going to go through every run, right, probably at once having been, like, a an eight year, an eight and a half even, right? Like a very good, like winning pro, right? And you kind of are like starting out um, after not having played very much for many years, a different game, a different setting, um, mostly tournaments instead of cash games, right? And you kind of start out as like a four and a half, right? And for a while, it was kind of like a point of like, okay, can I get to a point where I um, am playing poker and I'm actually a pretty decent player, right? And kind of now I feel like... Um, I've gotten to be a pretty decent player, but like getting from pretty decent to like actually good or like italics, good exclamation point, right. Is, is more challenging, I think. But it's still, I mean, the goal is still mostly to like, you know, number one, um, there are usually fun weekends. I usually, I often go with friends. If not though, I'm the kind of person who really also likes sometimes just to like have a weekend where I can be like totally anonymous. Um, you know, I, I find it intellectually, interesting at least in theory for the most part um i don't mind traveling and so it's kind of fun to make a little weekend out of something but i am trying to play i am trying to play well um i do think i have like a very um pragmatic but not very achievable goal which is like it'd be really fun to like make um the final table of a major tournament or like win a smaller tournament right because i've made the final table of smaller tournaments, but not the next step right Mm um you know That would just be fun. That would be something I could, like, kind of, like, um, um, you know, brag about a little bit. Just the bragging rights of it would be kind of cool. Um, And maybe there's some notion that, like, because I like poker, like, maybe if you kind of do something that is a little bit more noticeable, then um, then maybe you just kind of get a little bit more involved in the community. It kind of becomes self-reinforcing, I think, in in some ways. Um, But I don't know. Like, I'll tell you, like, one thing is, like, when the election is is finished <laughs> you know i've sometimes kind of thought about or like fantasized about like taking six months to a year where playing poker is like like a major thing that i'm doing probably not the only thing right but like where i'm like like seriously kind of seeing okay how far can i get up that that spectrum from total fish to best player in the world um okay, so i'm really taking it seriously for um for six months to a year in a kind of more concentrated way
2: if you do that, please come back on the show. We would love to uh, talk to you about how you prepare for that. <laughs> if you um, yeah,
1: I mean, I, I don't know. I think um, I think it might involve actually trying to learn more different games, right? So for a while, I was like um, really phobic of playing of playing limit hold'em. So I'm like, well, I'm trying to detrain myself from um, all the kind of habits, some of which are positives, but of which are negatives as a limit player. I mean, like one thing you learn is like um, you know overly Thin value bets, which you have to make in limit or want to make a limit? Like I remember, like as no limit player, like I would like value bet three streets with like top pair, maybe middle and kicker or something, right? Um, someone would would strain and strain and strain um, and finally make the call, right? And I'm like, oh gosh, so, wow, they call me down with middle pair. It's like no, it's like bottom set
2: or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: You know, you're not supposed to value it as much, obviously, and, and especially for bigger bit sizes in no limit hold'em. Um, but you know I, I found actually like occasionally playing limit, like there are pretty decent limit hold'em games at the Borgata a lot of the time or Bellagio. Um, maybe not places apart from those two venues, I don't know. Um, but it's kind of fun now to revisit limit holdem um, when you actually kind of learn a few good habits, right? Like now like you know, I used to like never ever ever I was notorious for like never ever Folding a showdownable hand um, in limit, right? Now it's like kind of easy to fold those hands, right? To the point where I went from doing that incorrectly sometimes. Um, but you know, I think actually kind of playing, um, going back and forth, and having different concepts you can apply is actually probably helpful.
0: Yeah, I That's think really it, cool. I think it definitely is. I mean, I'm I'm not very good at any game. I'm I'm not I'm barely competent at any game other than no limit. But I do feel like just understanding a little bit of the theory of those other games is helpful in no limit. You know, there are situations that come up occasionally in no limit, like uh, chopped pots, for instance, which come up all the time in other games. So if you understand a little bit of study strategy, that can be helpful when you know a situation where you're commonly going to chop a pot comes up in you know, no limit, for instance.
1: Yeah, I think I think. You know, multi-way posture, obviously common in Limit, i probably play those a little bit stronger than maybe the average person at my skill level. Um, there are some things you can do, like kind of you can actually make a, a, a free card raise sometimes in uh, in No Limit, uh, which is kind of like a vestige of a strategy that works all the time in in, in Limit poker. So um, there are some things you learn, but like I said, there's also like a lot of unlearning that, that you have to do.
2: Uh, so, I have a last-minute childcare thing that came up, so I have to duck out. I'm very sorry. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you, and if you ever want to have a summit of Nate's, I am totally up for it. <laughs> sure, thank you, Nate. Take care.
0: If uh, if you're okay with sticking around for um, for a few more minutes, Nate, I'd, I'd be curious to ask you a little bit about, uh, I, I guess, about the the election predictions? Yeah, for sure, of course. What I mean, so you, like we, we talked in the beginning of the interview about uh, variants or like different ways that, that you could run bad um, with like the, the, the 2016 presidential election, obviously 538 gave a higher probability to Trump winning than, than other places. But, you know, I think a lot of people are like, it seems like the, the conventional wisdom sort of is just that like people, the, the, the prediction experts uh, i think including 538 kind of got it wrong like do do you think that your number was off or do you think that you just ran dead
1: i think we had a great forecast i mean because i think like a gambler i'm like so you would have made a lot of money betting on trump relative to the prevailing line right? right i mean the prevailing line was that he was um about 15 or 18% to win on election day and we had him at 29 or 30, I think 29%. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like to me, like it's not just that, um, oh, 29% chances happen and people have to understand that. It's that we were, we were directionally right in the forecasts um, and that we spent like a lot of time telling people to take Trump's chances seriously. Um, and I thought even like leaned into that Pretty aggressively, right? Where because you're going to be wrong. I mean, if we think our model is roughly representative of the world, right? We're going to be wrong 71 percent of the time. Um, but we felt like that mess wasn't really getting through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, apart from the model, I mean, so that it was frustrating because, like, there had been this giant argument on the internet. We got criticized for being too bearish on Clinton, and then it kind of turns around and people start to start to blame the forecasters and stuff like that. And so, so that was kind of uniquely frustrating, I think, in terms of like, um, you know, number one, you know, people are not very nuanced about probabilities other than kind of 100% or 50-50. Number two, like kind of you get caught up. I mean, I think part of the reason was like, you know, people aren't necessarily distinguishing the 538 model from the New York Times model from... The Princeton model, the Princeton model had had Trump as a 90 or a 1% chance, right? Um, And probably there's kind of a a broad backlash against kind of empiricism, I think, that is kind of taking place in the Trump era um, for reasons that are like kind of a mix of good and bad, right? Everything um, from the election to like people being like, okay, actually, are these Silicon Valley companies... Totally benevolent? No, probably not, right? I think that help, 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 skepticism is healthy, I think. Um, so you kind of get caught up in a lot of things. But also, like, um, you know, we really were um, were contradicting people's priors a lot, right? Like, one thing I think is true is, like, it was no problem in the 2018 midterms to convince Democrats or convince people that Democrats had, like, a 15% chance of not winning the House, Right? I remember people were like, oh my gosh, one in six, it's a really high chance, so we need to make sure that people turn out and vote, you know what I mean? Um, which was a more remote chance than, than one in four or one in three that Trump had or whatever. And so people, I think, like, I think the frustrating thing is, like, it's very hard to get people to come off their um, their priors with probabilities, you know what I mean? Yeah. If their priors tell them that, like, because you can read 70-30 either way, um, if you want confirmation that something is uncertain, you'll be convinced that it's uncertain. If you want confirmation that, you know, the thing you, we want to have happen is going to happen, then you can be convinced by that also. And so um, so in some ways it's like part of the variance is there's like a a, a gap between um, what I think is a good forecast, which kind of you define in two different ways, right? Number one, or maybe three different ways. One is like, over the long run, how well calibrated are you? So of your 70% they happen neither more or less often than 70%.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, number two is kind of um where do you stand relative to the marketplace so relative to prediction markets or relative to kind of more broadly like the conventional wisdom right are you kind of um are you right more often than not on the right side of things directionally um and number three is like kind of also as a as a journalistic tool because a lot of the time like i think if you actually like um are good at building models, it forces you to be more rigorous, and it kind of forces you to like um, to test unchecked assumptions that you might have made, right? Um, so, in the process of building our kind of model for the primaries this year, for various reasons, became less skeptical of the chances of Bernie Sanders becoming the Democratic nominee, right? Things that I believe that kind of seemed semi-empirical or or half true um, when you scrutinize them didn't hold up that well, and things that I thought. Were thought of as not being that important, like Bernie's fundraising, for example. Actually, kind of if you test things with, with, um, with a lot of rigor. Like actually, that does kind of show up a little bit. And so I think kind of you know it's a good feeling when, um, when you kind of come in with the, with the half assed or kind of two-thirds-ass notion about something, and you study something really carefully, um, and then through that study you become more disciplined about how you kind of view the world potentially. And so it's kind of like you know we're going to be wrong. Honey often right relative to any of those benchmarks but like but we're coming from a place where we're being I think it forces you to be like fairly self-consistent it forces you to actually kind of say okay um let me kind of measure and quantify things um and it gives you a discipline that you might lack otherwise right there are times when um when the forecast might move in a direction that I don't expect or in direction that I'm not rooting for for changes a lot but like Models kind of locked in, unless we actually do find bugs, which can happen occasionally. But like, literally, like, you know, we have staffers who kind of ant polls into the database and it triggers an automatic model run. It's kind of updating itself at like two in the morning or whatever. And it's like, I'm not sitting there having to be a pundit about kind of every marginal poll or every kind of marginal outcome that happens and how that would affect my kind of subjective feeling about the race. Mm.
0: How do you, um, I guess, w- when you talk about wanting uh, your 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 60% predictions to come in about 60% of the of the time. When you're looking at something like a, a presidential election where, I mean, in some sense, you just have an N of one. I mean, even if it's an N of two or three, if, if we treat all presidential elections as, as you know, instances that you can compare to each other, which even that seems a little dicey to me, but you know, how, how could you, or how, how would you retroactively, like, calibrate something like that, or say after the fact um, we had a uh, we had a good number on this after the fact. Is, is, is there a way to, to do that calibration?
1: Um, there's not, I mean, the simple answer is like, no, the sample size is never large enough. Um, and so you're probably better off looking at something like, like forecast for Congress, where you have, you know, 435 races for the house every year and roughly 35 Senate race. So they're not totally independent of one another, which makes things a bit more complicated. Um, but like, but that's probably a, a actually, actually a better test, right, than the presidential race. I mean, there are some things, right? You can't prove that you're right, but you can prove that you're wrong, if that makes sense, right? Um, like if you didn't have the particular combination of states that Trump won as being a plausible output, right, then, then your model was wrong, right? So you only take it only takes one proof that you're that you're entirely wrong. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and like you know, part of the reason, by the way, that we felt like um, we should have gotten, on balance, kind of credit, and not blame for 2016, is that we had a big gap between the electoral college and the popular vote that favored Trump. Um, and so we kind of had like a range of all possible outcomes, including both the popular vote and the electoral college, and the particular states that he won or that Clinton won. Um, the actual draw that we got would be kind of relatively thickly weighted in our distribution of all possible outcomes, right? Um, you know, not that likely because every scenario is pretty unlikely, right, when you have so many permutations, but, like, but that would be quite thick. Um, whereas for some people, it might be thin, and so, I mean, actually, you know, if you're basing about it, actually, then kind of you can learn more than you would think based on, on a few forecasts. Um, but, you know, but, yeah, I mean, the short answer is what I gave originally, which is, like, which is like, no, I mean, I kind of live with this frustration of like, of like knowing that, um, that I'll never really be able to kind of prove <laughs> one way or another whether kind of presidential forecasts are, are good. I can prove they're bad if we screw up in certain ways. Right. But I can't prove that they're good, which I think is like part of why I'm attracted to, um, things like sports too, is there's like, there's actually like much larger sample sizes. Right. Um, or congressional elections where like you can actually kind of be like, Truly empirical, you know what I mean. You can like, okay, I can kind of say definitively that this is how much that fundraising matters in races for Congress, right? Um, you have enough data to prove that. Whereas, like, you have any presidential race, like someone like Bloomberg come in, um, and they're just like literally. I mean, he's an extreme case, no matter what, right? So it's maybe not the best example. Um, but you know, you spend a lot of time dealing with um, with edge cases and you know the skills and trying to trying to infer in a robust way what the entire distribution would look like if you had like a very large sample size um that's what kind of some of the I guess I don't know if you want to call it art I feel like that's a, a term that people kind of um think involves subjectivity which it doesn't exactly but it does involve judgment it does involve like um often the judgments about like okay I can fit a model that um fits the da- the past data more rigidly but it may actually not perform as well out of sample right um and so you have to make kind of like a lot of of educated guesses and working on other types of problems is, is quite helpful for that, right? Ranging from sports models where the data is just a lot better, um, to probably in some ways like like poker too, I think.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say that the that frustration of never being able to know for sure. I mean I guess even getting the negative confirmation is is useful, but that it's so familiar from poker, especially in, in a pre-solver era where you really, you know, you bluff and your opponent calls. Does that mean it was a bad bluff? Does that mean that he happened to have, you know, a hand that he was never folding, but he would have folded some other part of his range? Like you just, you never you never know or if he if he does fold or if you fold to his bet you never know whether he had it or you know what his distribution of hands would have been even if you ask him if he had it you don't know if he's telling the truth he's not necessarily self-aware about his own range even if he like told you that that's a good fold you know given what his range would be in that situation you know you there's 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 so many unknowns there and i think that's like part of what the the appeal of uh, game theory solver is for me is Even though it doesn't give you an exact answer because there's still, you want to be taking certain exploitative things or reads or whatever into consideration, but it's at least some kind of firm foundation where you can look and say, in the absence of reads, this was good, or I hope I had a hell of a read or else this is going to be bad. Uh, I think that like... That that just rang very true for me. That that uh, desire yeah. for certainty when you're when you're dealing with uh, when you have something at stake on these uh, uncertain outcomes, where even after the fact you you can't. It's hard to know whether you you know approached it the right way.
1: Yeah, and having having a good baseline, right, is like is so important. I think um, because there are times when um, when you know I will say, okay, here is our model. Our model probably is not. Handling this case all that well, but like at least you kind of know what things you're missing. You know what I mean? Because you know kind of what things you are accounting for, um, and that can be helpful too. I also would guess that like you know, out of all the times when um, when I say, "Oh, our model is kind of handling this poorly," like a lot of times it turns out to handle it pretty well, right? Um, so after the New Hampshire primary, for example, um, there was a lot of hype around Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar who finished second and third respectively um and historically you don't really get much of a bounce unless you kind of finish in first right a bounce meaning that you gain momentum in future states in the polls mm-hmm. um and so kind of our model kind of came out with this initial estimate of how the polls would change after new hampshire um and um and i kind of wrote oh i think it's probably too skeptical about klobuchar because she got a lot of good media narrative about the race right it turned out to be like like pretty much like spot on there are also cases where our model was not Thinking that Michael Bloomberg could somehow emerge out of the chaos, of the first couple of states doing as well as he is, and so you definitely get some things that are wrong too. But like, um, but you know, people I think are way too willing to like um, to trust not their subjective judgment, but like in the edge cases where um, where things are difficult, you know, your intuition um, is not necessarily going to help you. You know what I mean? Um, and like, just like like a lot of what I do is like kind of fighting against. I think people's intuition you know one intuition that people have like very strongly is that when a candidate is rising in the polls that they tend to continue to rise um and it's basically not true it's basically a random walk um but it's like kind of very very hard to get people to to accept that um it's kind of very hard to get people kind of off their um i mean this is one thing i think you do learn in poker a little bit right you're not making your money from like um from the very worst poker players in the world, because they're not playing in the first place, you know? You're Mm -hmm. making money from someone who is probably, um, similar to you, but like a little bit worse, you know? Or maybe more than a little bit worse, but like is probably competent enough to like have remained in that poker room and and be part of the poker economy and have the money to spend playing poker. Um, Is it kind of like, what are things that like, um, that medium sophisticated people think (laughs) about, (laughs) right? And where are those things, and where are those things wrong? so that can often get you kind of in trouble because it means like you're often getting disconnected from like the um, from like the the real world. You know what I mean? I'll get um, really up in arms. Of like, okay, well, our model says Bernie Sanders has a 25% chance of winning the state and you say 20% and boy, are you wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, that's not really a real world difference that really um, would matter like an ordinary person. So kind of getting, getting a little bit out of like the um, media slash um election forecaster slash kind of Twitter bubble I think is, is important to do.
0: Yeah, I remember you got kind of a, uh, a, a wrist slap from the New York Times, didn't you? Because you were trying to get uh, other pundits to like bet with you on their uh, on their predictions.
1: Yeah, I tried to get Joe Scarborough to actually bet money for charity. He said that the election was a toss-up between Romney and Obama. I'm like, okay, I'm happy to kind of bet you 50-50. will bet 2,000 bucks for charity. He's like, no, I, don't, I don't want to do that. I said, how about 4,000 bucks instead, right? But like, yeah, there's <laughs> like... Um, there's not like a lot of tolerance for gambling or there was not at the New York times really, nor at my current employer, which is ultimately ABC news and the Walt Disney corporation. Um, On the sports side, um, there is more tolerance now for explicit reference to gambling, which I think is kind of, kind of helpful. Um, But yeah, look, I mean, um, you know, there's not a ton of um, accountability. I think obviously for people who are, who are, um, Political pundit so to speak, and one other thing we do is like we actually kind of write um, write numbers down. You know what I mean? And people can interpret those or misinterpret those as they wish. Like if we never written a a number down for Trump, right? And we just said okay, read a bunch of articles that said, oh, he's more lucky than you think, right? Um, then we might be held as geniuses. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of like anytime someone's willing to like make a prediction and use disclosure. Um, there should be more of a bias toward rewarding people for that, you know what I mean? Which is true for like political candidates too. I feel like if, um, if Donald Trump doesn't disclose his tax returns or, or Bernie Sanders or Mike Bloomberg don't disclose their medical records or whatever else, right? I think people should probably actually assume that it's like actually quite bad what they're hiding, you know what right, I mean? Right. Um, and people don't adjust for that enough. Or if you, the flip side is like, okay, if you see like there is some raid, you know, all the Sony corporations emails are unearthed, right? Like I'm actually very anal retention about like not writing because I hate writing emails in general, right? About like not writing anything interesting in emails. Um, but for ninety-nine percent of people, and probably for me too, if you look carefully enough, right, you know, under the very worst things you've written in email or in a slack chat or something else are gonna look really quite bad. People don't don't, I think, adjust for that kind of thing nearly nearly enough.
0: No, I, I have this hope. Like in general, I'm I'm very like pro privacy or you really concerned about um, the various developments and in, in like loss of uh, of privacy, but I I do have this hope that, uh, that in the future everybody's like online behavior is going to become like public knowledge it's just like will be it will be inevitable that we can't keep that in the bag and i think it's going to make it hard like when everyone can see what everyone is like google searching or what kind of pornography they're watching or whatever it's going to be a lot harder for people to be as as judgmental as they as they currently are
1: yeah i hope it, i think it kind of goes through phases and, and waves and i think the current um current way, there's a lot of ability to like, you know, drag people and dunk on people for stuff like that. I think, um, you know, Twitter in particular, which is a platform that, um, you know, I don't know. I used to, I used to, this is kind of embarrassing, right? I used to kind of like tell people like, Oh, I think there's like a, a, um, optimal strategy for conflict on Twitter, right? Where you have to like, um, be willing to like push back on people because that creates a deterrent for, um, for them to come after you. Um, I think that actually doesn't work so well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anymore, right? That if you're someone with um, with a big following, you just look like a dick if you're going after someone and people don't understand the context that maybe there's an occasion for it, but it's it's pretty occasional indeed. Um, well, I so think I especially
0: to, with having a background in debate, it can be tough to, to drop an argument.
1: It can be tough, right? It's like, it's like oh, someone is wrong on the internet, the XKCD cartoon or whatever else, yeah. right? And that and like, people can be unfair and like there's the old saying like, um, like uh, you know, it takes ten times as much effort to refute bullshit as to create it. I think that's kind of roughly right. But At the same time, like um, you know, some of my times um, when I've gotten trouble on Twitter it's like when I'm actually not the expert, right? When I'm someone who like is just kind of weighing in because they're like, oh, I've got a, a cool platform with three million followers, right? And I can say this response and get likes or provoke people or whatever else, right? Um, but I'm trying to like kind of focus on um, on subjects that, you know, mean like the election, right, or, or maybe the NBA, maybe I don't really tweet about poker much, but I feel like I could, you know, confidently tweet
0: about poker, right? But try I, to I would sp- love to see more tweets from you about poker.
1: Maybe, I've thought about like opening like a sports and poker Twitter account, because like, um, because you'll, you know, publish some very, very boring tweet, oh, here's a poll in Vermont <laughs> or something, um, and it gets like 100 or 500 retweets, and then like a very interesting, I think, point about the NBA, your poker, people get kind of ignored. So I might do a, a sports and poker 538 account, or an 8 account, I should say.
0: Yeah. Is, is there anything else at 538 that you would uh, encourage people to check out in particular? I mean, obviously, you're, you're most well known for um, the, the political predictions. But I mean, I, I remember... Um, the I, I particularly liking this little series you had on the podcast a few years ago about gerrymandering. I, I thought that was especially good. Are, are there things from five thirty eights output that you would want to uh, highlight for people who maybe aren't regular uh, followers outside of your president your uh, political predictions? Yeah, if you're a
1: fan of the thinking poker podcast, I think you would probably like the five thirty eight podcasts very similar in the sense that like we're trying to um, trying to just flesh out difficult ideas in in real time. Um, and like I wouldn't have thought that our podcast would have worked, right? We didn't have a podcast at first, but like people kind of, it's kind of fun to say, okay, here are these things that are big and complex and intimidating, but we're trying to like wrap our heads around them the same way that you are, and here's kind of what it looks like from our point of view. I think that's, that's really, I enjoy the podcast. Um, we also have a series now about the primary system and how it came to be um, because it is a very strange system that other countries mostly don't have, so I would encourage people to check, out, check out that series. Um, and we have sports stuff too. I mean, I worked um, for a lot of my summer working on a NBA player evaluation system called Raptor, um, which we think is pretty cool. To actually um, actually beat Vegas so far, which I know enough to know it may not do that in the long run, uh, but it's still kind of it's still kind of fun to track it. Um, and it's um, using some of the the player tracking data that's not been used in publicly available stats until until fairly recently. So there's lots of good stuff at Five Thirty Eight. Um, you know, um, and we appreciate people who are coming there with um, with kind of a good kind of critical kind of quantitative eye for sure.
0: Anything else you'd want to leave people with? Uh, favorite books or you know, recommendations in the art world?
1: Um, No, I think it's pretty much it. Um, you know, it's uh, actually one of the problems with like having poker as one of your kind of recreational tools. Like it uses the same part of my brain that like my regular work does. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Look <laughs> and leave you kind of feeling... Um, Maybe kind of you know I'll have a poker weekend go to Atlanta City or something like be like I feel like I've worked for like, like <laughs> right. straight days right even though I took this three day weekend to play poker and like eat steak or whatever and so it's it's um, you know but um, but no I mean I you know I uh, I hope we have poker players reading the site I mean I find that, I find there's like um, no good people I like I more reliably get along with or understand the people who play poker it's kind of very close to the mentality. Um, that I'm trying to take at 5:38 at the same time. We have like a lot of wonderful journalists who approach the world from many different ways, and one of the fun things about working in a newsroom is that you can take different viewpoints that kind of coalesce on big problems, um, like the election, for example. Um, and so, we hope people enjoy the content.
0: Well, I've enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much for uh, for taking the time and, and for being a regular listener as well. Like I said, I'm. Um, it, it's just deeply flattering to uh know that people are, are choosing to uh spend their their time with you and uh, i mean that goes for everyone who's, who's listening we uh we take we take our responsibility to our audience seriously and uh it, it's always very flattering to hear from people who are listeners to the show but it was uh, great talking to you Nate. cool man i'll talk to you soon all right The devotion of a car my light The fair passage of a bill And who will sign us into
2: law I know you won't